Sorry about that. I just realized I wasn't recording yet. So, uh, okay, we're recording now. We're live. The uh, slides will be displayed on the screen. I can also make notes as needed on the slides. So you'll be able to see those. Uh, the whole session is being recorded. If you have a question uh, as I go along, you can, if you notice down at the bottom of the area underneath the people box, there are four buttons uh, going from left to right. There is a checkbox, an X, a hand, and a, a motion con. So if you have a question as we go along, if you can just click on the little hand icon, I will pause and answer your question. And then you can give me the question one of two ways. You can either text your question to the left, or if you have a microphone, you can actually speak your question. I'll be happy to answer it. Uh, so with that said, I think we're ready to go. Um, is there any questions before we get started? Okay, so the, the purpose of this presentation, uh, actually this presentation would have gone a whole lot better if I had done it before the class lecture last week, but that's okay. Uh, but the purpose of today's lecture is to talk about basic muscle anatomy, contractile physiology, and nervous control of skeletal muscle contraction. The basic components of the muscle cell or myofibril are as follows. The sarcolemma, which is the plasma membrane of a muscle cell. The sarcoplasm, which is the cytoplasm of the muscle cell. Basically, anytime you see the word sarco, sarco always refers to uh, striated muscle. In this case, we're going to be talking about skeletal muscle. We have the sarcoplasmic reticulum, or the SR, which is composed of two structures, the terminal cisternae and the transverse tubules, or T-tubules. The terminal cisternae is the primary storage location of calcium, and it's the calcium that's released to facilitate muscle contraction. The final piece of the muscle cell is the myofibril, which contains actin, the thin filament, myosin, the thick filament, and titan, the, um, the longest protein in the body. Any questions about this slide before we move on? In muscle, there are three different types of connective tissue. There is the epimysium, which surrounds the entire muscle fiber. The paramysium, which is in between individual muscle fibers. And the endomysium, which is within the muscle fibers. If you look at the little diagram at your right, uh, this is a cross-section of a muscle. Uh, you can see all those individual structures are muscle fibers or muscle cells. You can see the epimysium, which is surrounding, it's the outer layer of connective tissue surrounding all of the fibers. I'll uh, put a little um, X, a little arrow to show that. So this is the epimysium right here. This is the paramysium right here. And finally, the endomysium, which would be within the individual muscle fibers. Okay, these are just the connective tissues that hold the muscle cell together.
This diagram depicts the typical muscle anatomy from the most, the highest level or the growth level all the way down to the fine level. The, if we start up here at the top, uh, you can see the top here starting with the bone. You have the tendon which connects the muscle to the bone. And then you have this layer of connective tissue called fascia. Fascia connects to the tendon and then it circulates the whole muscle belly. You can see that you have uh, an individual muscle here. And then you can go in and pull out what's called a fascicle um, out of that muscle cell. And within that fascicle, you can see there's a, a motor neuron depicted by the yellow structure here. You can also see blood supply uh, depicted by the red vessel. Within the individual fascicle, you can see the endomycium. You can also see the nucleus of the muscle cells. And you can see if you look at an individual muscle cell here, you can see the sarcolemma. It's white. And then if you look within the individual muscle cells, you'll see this blue structure, which is the sarcoplasmic reticulum we just talked about, and the individual myofibril. And then further, the myofibrils can be broken down into essentially the thick filament, which is myosin, and the thin filament, which is actin. So the key is there's lots of different uh, anatomical structures associated with the muscle cell, which play differing roles in terms of skeletal muscle contraction. Uh, anybody have any questions? This is just basic orientation of the muscles uh, to understand how contractile properties work. If we look a little bit more closely at an individual muscle fiber or muscle cell, this is the structure you would see. You can see the pink outer membrane of the, the muscle fiber, which is the sarcolemma. Also, if you look at the uh, interior of the cell, you can see that most of the interior of the, the muscle cell is made up of these myofibrils and the uh, essentially the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And you'll see there's two pieces to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. There is the green portion, which is the terminal cisternae, which is the storage structure for calcium. And then there's the transverse or T-tubules depicted by the yellow line. Within the myofibrils, these are the key contractile units of the muscle cell. The more myofibrils you have, the uh, greater force of skeletal muscle con contraction can be generated. You also note the presence of the nucleus uh, depicted by the pink structures pressed to the outsides of the cell, along with the blood vessels. Again, we're just looking a little bit more detailed at the contractile units of the muscle cell. You also see over here at the left, there's some structures called the A-band, the I-band, and the Z-band. And these are different uh, overlapping of the thick and thin filaments within the sarcomere. And we'll look at these some more in just a moment. A motor unit is defined as one motor neuron and all the muscle fibers that it innervates. This diagram depicts a motor neuron, more specifically an alpha motor neuron, and what you see is you see first the dendrites in the cell body of the alpha motor neuron, and then you see the axon hillock, and then move the direction of the nervous signal always moves from the cell body down the axon hillock toward the muscle. You can also see that when it reaches the end of the axon hillock, it, be, it branches out into these terminal branches, which then connect to the motor unit or the uh, myofibril via the motor end plate. 
And essentially, this is the structure of the motor neuron. Keep in mind that, as I mentioned in class the other day, the motor neuron is, uh, or the motor neuron for gross movements, so movements like walking or running or things of that nature, tend to innervate thousands of muscle fibers at one time. However, the motor neurons associated with fine movements like handwriting or eye motion, one motor neuron only tends to integrate into a single or only a handful of muscle fibers because it allows for better control of the contraction. Okay, as I pause here, I see that two of you have checked uh, with X's next to your name or you're not following what I'm saying. Is, do you have a specific question that I can um, address a bit more before I move on? This uh, is an electron myograph of what an actual motor unit or motor neuron unit looks like. So you can see the, uh, the thin lines coming down here represent the axons. You can see the branches down here at the bottom representing the uh, motor neuron connection points. And effectively, this, uh, this would be an example of what a motor neuron would look like. So you have the motor neuron coming down. You have an innervating muscle fiber or a group of muscle fibers. And that's consistent with what a motor neuron is, or motor unit is. So it's a motor neuron and all the muscle fibers that innervate. Within the skeletal muscle, there are also some different types of neural receptors. And these neural receptors are designed to sense and detect changes in the skeletal muscle contraction as a means to, predict, to essentially prevent the muscle from being injured. The, the two types of uh, receptors we're going to talk about now, one is called the muscle spindle. It senses changes in muscle length, and uh, it's responsible for what we call the stretch reflex. It's located within the belly of the muscle, and we'll look at what that looks like a bit more in a moment. The picture at the right depicts the location of a muscle spindle in an actual muscle unit. The Golgi tendon organ, on the other hand, detects changes in muscle tendon tension. And effectively, these are located in the tendons at either end of the muscle. And they detect changes in muscle force that might injure the muscle or cause the tendon to tear loose from the bone. These images depict uh, cartoon drawings of the muscle spindle and the Golgi tendon organ. On the left, you see the muscle spindle. It's located within the muscle fiber itself. And you can see it's connected to some nerve endings. And these nerve endings would carry information related to the length of the muscle back to the central nervous system so that a uh, decision can be made. If the muscle is stretched too far, then the response of the nervous system would be one that would cause the muscle to contract in order to prevent injury. The uh, image on the right depicts the location of a Golgi tendon organ. And you can see the Golgi tendon organ is located in the tendon. It's not located in the actual muscle. And when it is activated, it sends a sensory neuron signal back to the central nervous system via the spinal cord. And in this example, you can see that the, once that signal is detected in the spinal cord, it then sends a signal back out to the muscle telling it to contract. And that contraction will reduce tendon tension. So any questions about muscle tendon or muscle spindle uh, organs? 
These, again, are designed to detect the nature of the skeletal muscle contraction for the purposes of preventing injury. The Golgi tendon organ is, the, is located within the tendon at either end of the muscle. It detects the change in muscle tendon tension. So while there is relationships between length, muscle length and tendon tension, they're not directly related. So this gives you two different means by which to sense changes in the skeletal muscle contraction. You could switch, uh, essentially sense them merely by changes in length or by changes in tendon tension. Say that five times fast for everybody. Any other questions about the, these receptors? All right, this diagram is meant to depict some different uh, anatomical landmarks within the sarcomere. The sarcomere is the smallest contractile unit of skeletal muscle. It's defined as the location between adjacent Z-lines. So you can see the Z-lines depicted here. And then you have some structures within there. You have the M-line, which is very creatively called the M-line because it's in the middle. You have the, in this example, you have the thin filaments, which are depicted as um, red or actin. The thick filament, which is depicted as the, the thick green line or myosin. And then you have something called the H-band. The H-band is the area where there is no uh, active presence. There's only myosin. The A-band is called the dark band because it's associated with the overlapping of actin and myosin. And the I-band is considered the light band because it's only composed of actin. And you can see when you look at an actual uh, myograph of muscle, you can see dark and light patches. And the dark patch that you see is the A-band. The light patch that you see is the I-band. And basically, the way this works is when skeletal muscle contracts, the ends of that myosin move closer to the Z-line. And by moving closer to the Z-line, that causes the H-band to completely disappear. It causes the I-band to completely disappear. And the only thing you're left with is an A-band. Any questions about how this works here? We're going to look at sarcomeres a bit more in just a moment. But again, just keep in mind, sarcomeres are the most basic unit of skeletal muscle contraction. This is another image which depicts uh, the sarcomere, actually multiple sarcomeres in this case. And on this example, you can see a couple of different structures. The, uh, the first structure that we see is this structure, which is myosin or the thick filament. The next structure we see is these right here, which is the actin molecule. And then you can see some of the other structures. For instance, you can see what this zigzag Z-line is called the Z-disc or Z-line, which we talked about just a moment ago. You can also see the M-line in the center of the sarcomere. The, the final structures that you see on here is you see uh, this uh, wavy protein, which is present on all of the sarcomeres, multiple locations here. This uh, wavy line is uh, Titan. And titan is the third contractile protein that we'll be talking about today. And titan is a protein that's responsible for restoring the sarcomere to its resting position. So effectively what happens is th as the muscle contracts, this end and this end of actin squeeze 
closer together. And as they squeeze closer together, you essentially remove the H-band or this area where there is no actin, and you remove the I-band, so all you're left with is a section of muscle where myosin and actin are overlapping. And that's why it's called the sliding filament theory, because these sections literally slide together towards one another, and then they stop. And then once they've slid all the way together, then the muscle will stop contracting, and Titan will restore these things to their resting position. Does that make sense to everybody? Well, again, we'll look at this some more in just a moment. Skeletal muscle contraction is a fairly straightforward response, and it requires some intervention from nerves via something called the myoneural junction. And if you break that word down, what it literally means is the muscle nerve junction. The muscle nerve junction or myoneural junction consists of four components or responses. One is the alpha motor neuron. In this picture to the left, it's depicted by the yellow. So you have the alpha motor neuron. The second structure is the muscle fiber itself, here depicted by the pink. And then you have something called the neuromuscular cleft, in this case depicted by the purple. The key with the way this response works is that there's no physical touching between the nerve and the muscle. And this neuromuscular cleft is actually a physical space between the two, anatomical space. They're not physically touching one another. A fourth component of the response is what's called the in-plate potential. And effectively what this means is that if you send a nervous signal down a motor neuron for the nerve to contract, it is an electrical signal until it gets to the end of the motor neuron. When it gets to the end of the motor neuron, this is translated into a chemical signal. And in the case of muscle contraction, the chemical that is released is a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Acetylcholine will diffuse across the motor neuromuscular cleft, it will bind to the muscle membrane, and it will cause the contraction of the muscle. And this, uh, this movement of acetylcholine across the neuromuscular cleft and subsequent binding to the muscle fiber initiates what's called an in-plate potential. And this in-plate potential is an electrical discharge within the muscle fiber, and it causes the sarcoplasmic reticulum to release calcium. The, the only real means by which we know to talk about skeletal muscle contraction is something referred to as the sliding filament theory. And in particular, the sliding filament theory is really only effective for describing two types of contractions, what we call uh, isokinetic contractions and isotonic contractions. So isokinetic means constant speed, and isotonic means constant force. And in this example, the way that it works is, again, actin slides past myosin. So you have actin. If my fingers depicted Z-lines. You have two Z-lines sliding closer together. And you have actin sliding past myosin. And effectively, the muscle gets shorter. And as the muscle gets shorter, it generates force. The, the entire process, as I described a moment ago, is restored to the relaxed state by the presence of Titan. Now, this is not a foolproof theory because uh, in this theory, it can't describe really how the muscle could generate force uh, via an isometric contraction. 
So an isometric contraction is one where the muscle is not changing length, but it is generating force. It would also not explain how the muscle can generate force during an eccentric contraction when it's getting actively longer. So it's not the ideal theory. If you look at this electron myograph here that we have at the right, you can see some of the uh, units within the sarcomere that we've been discussing. This uh, dark red line that you see, this is the Z line. You can roughly see a light spot, spotted line right in the center here, which is the M line. This, uh, this lightened area here is part of the I band as well as this on either side of the Z, Z line. And then you can see right here the pieces of the A-band. So again, the A-band, the overlapping area between actin and myosin. And then finally, if you look right here in the center of the sarcomeres, you can see a lighter area, and that would be the, uh, the H-band, which is primarily just uh, myosin. So again, if you look on electron myographs, you can see some different objects within skeletal muscle. Also, interestingly, these yellow globules are likely triglycerides, intramuscular triglycerides. And those are the things that we talked about previously when we talked about uh, production of ATP via fat metabolism in skeletal muscle. Okay, we've just got uh, about two more slides here, and then I'll pause if you guys have any questions over what we've uh, gone over today. Okay, this is just another depiction of uh, the actin-myosin interaction in a bit more detail. So again, we see the thick filament, which is myosin. We see the thin filament, which is actin. And the actin is depicted by these green spots. You also see a couple of other structures. You see this uh, structure called troponin and something called tropomyosin. And in general, when the muscle is in a relaxed state, the reason that it's in a relaxed state is because the um, effectively tropomyosin blocks the interaction between actin and myosin. However, when you release calcium, calcium goes in and it binds to troponin. It causes tropomyosin to change its shape, and in doing so, it reveals the active site on actin. Now, on the myosin head, there's actually two binding sites. The myosin head can either be bound to actin or it can be bound to ATP, but it can't be bound to both. So what you find is that that's why ATP is so very important, because when ATP is bound to myosin, it will release from actin, and when ATP is not bound to myosin, it will bind to actin, and that's what allows the filament to, to shorten. Also, if you've ever seen um, a dead animal on the side of the road that looks stiff as a board, one of the reasons it looks stiff as a board or has the condition rigor mortis is because they no longer have ATP in their body. And again, myosin can only be bound to actin or ATP. And if there's no ATP, then myosin cannot uncouple from actin. So again, troponin and tropomyosin and calcium, they play key roles in mediating skeletal muscle contraction. This uh, final image is meant to depict, again, the location of Titan. Titan is illustrated here by the yellow wavy line. You can see that it starts at the Z line. It proceeds through to the center line or the M line, and then it proceeds back out to the next Z line. And this, uh, this protein is shaped much like an accordion. So when the muscle contracts, it squeezes down. And then when the muscle relaxes, it pulls the muscle back to its resting position. 
And titan is a key protein associated with skeletal muscle contraction. Uh, titan is also the longest protein in the human body. Also in this diagram, you can see uh, the thin filament, which is depicted by the thin yellow line, which is actin. You can see the deep black line, which is the thick filament, or myosin. Okay, and that concludes what I had to discuss with you all today. Uh, thank you for the three of you that came. I do appreciate that. Uh, I can take a few minutes to answer a few questions that you may have concerning this material or the in-class material. Um, real quick, uh, so we've got a real quick question, isokinetic contraction. So anytime you see the word iso, iso means constant, and in this case, kinetic means speed. So an isokinetic contraction is a contraction which is done at a constant speed.